Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to this episode of In Lockdown With, with me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Today my guest is Izzy Raby. Hi Izzy, how's it going? Hi Kieran, it's going well, thank you. How has uh, lockdown been for you? We haven't caught up in a while, so how have no, you been? No, we haven't. <laughs> I mean, it's been, it's been a really odd year because I kind of, mm. I started... Um, 2020 sort of living between three cities I was sort of between London Cardiff and Bristol and then lockdown happened and I spent six months in my parents house in rural mid Wales um, which was very unexpected haven't lived at home since I was a teenager for that amount of time (laughs) so that was a real that was a real term for books and then in the last three months, I've moved to Lewisham in um, South East London. Right. Um, so it's been, yeah, I've just been, for, for, for a lockdown sort of year, I've been a bit all over the shop, really, in terms of geographically. <laughs> you, you have got up quite a bit. So you're, you're, yeah. in, uh, so you're in England now, so you're kind of under the English lockdown rules. Are you getting to grips with um, understanding everything? (laughs) I mean, it is, it's really confusing. I mean, what's been, I mean, especially recently, I mean, in the past month, it's like I'm spending so many hours on Zoom at the moment, Mm. like real kind of long periods of time. And I expect that to have such a kind of, just in terms of like a physical effect, like I went on a long walk on the weekend which I'm normally, like, I wouldn't get achy from, but because I'm sat down for so many hours yeah. of the day, like, I was feeling my joints ache. Like, I, you know, like, I felt yeah. older. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is what comes from, like, spending most of your day sitting down, you know, and, and when we're not used to it, um, stuff like that, you know. But I'm very grateful that I have work, and I'm very grateful for where I am at the moment in terms of my career, so I can't complain, really. So the first thing I wanted to ask you, which is how I start every one of these podcasts, is how did you first get interested in theatre? Sure. Well, I mean, for me, it kind of, it sort of, I kind of had no escape from it, really. I I come from a family of theatre academics, right. um, both my parents also made their own work in the 80s and 90s. And early 2000s so I kind of grew up in this house where um, work was constantly being made um, theatre people were always in the house um, 
so for me it's kind of when I'm around theatre people and when I'm in sort of rehearsal rooms I feel very sort of at home and from a from really kind of you know mm. dot it was just a big part of my life and then my you know I work in music as well and my grandfather was a jazz musician and so music was also always around as well so I've not really I mean the apple has not fallen very far from the tree really <laughs> was there any part of you when you were a child that thought about going against that for any period oh absolutely I mean I I really did I, going especially my choice to study drama at university because my parents were both drama theatre academics I was like I was like going to do international politics. I was going to, you know, do English, yeah. and you know, and even in terms of sort of the trajectory of my career, especially in terms of academia, like I was always I kind of put a weird pressure on myself for a lot of years, being like, right, you're going to do a PhD like your dad, you're going to go into academia, right. and that is not what's happened. And I, you know, I've just gone full freelance creative, and like I'm so grateful for that, and I'm. Yeah, I definitely have had various different kinds of rebellions away from it, you know. Um, and even though, you know, my parents um, come from a theatre background and, and that obviously has had a huge impact on me, my life is also very different from theirs. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, they always kind of created work within the sort of the structures of the university, whereas I've kind of just... <laughs> done it from my absolutely no structure self-funded sort of stuff so you know it's like there's real similarities but there's also like real differences as well and in terms of like did you have taken much from them in terms of the work that you make like i mean it's interesting definitely in terms of my love of contemporary um texts i mean i was really as most young <laughs> young drama nerds are like I was obsessed with Sarah Kane when I was a teenager and part of that was to do with the fact that my mum directed Crave with her students in 1999 right. um, when Kane actually um, passed away and and I actually picked up the script and started reading it when I was nine years old, which was possibly wow. not the wisest choice. Yeah, because um, I was one of those kids that just like loved. You know, I loved reading, and I just and I remember my mum being like, ah, um, <laughs> and that really like sowed a seed in in my love of like contemporary texts. Um, and so obviously, yeah, they've they, you know they've had a huge like there's been an influence there. And I even actually my most recent piece that I directed for my theatre company that didn't actually end up happening um, because of lockdown. I the set was like a massive like climbing frame a multicolored climbing frame and it was really a love letter to the work my parents made in the 90s that was about always climbing on scaffolding and as a young child I just remember like them always (laughs) making work on scaffolding and climbing and then my and I remember my dad having a really serious injury from this once like he was like bruised all the way down his arm and like and I remember that as such like a clear memory from my childhood. And so turning sets into kind of interactive playgrounds was something that I was sort of, yeah, that was a sown seed very early on in my life. And and you went on to university, you went, you studied a BA in drama at Exeter University. 
what was that course like and how did it prepare you for your, your future career in the arts, do you think? And, and can I just add to that, kind of going into that course, did you think, I want to be an actor or I want to be a director, I want to be, what were your kind of intentions going in? Oh, that's, that's a really great question, Karen. because I totally went in thinking I was going to come out an actor. Like, uh, throughout my teens, I was like, I'm going to be an actor, that's all I want to be. Nothing gives me greater satisfaction and joy than being an actor. But actually, when I went to Exeter, I discovered directing, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so much better. I, for me, personally, I loved it so much because it... What I loved about directing was the fact that you could kind of have an objective distance and look at what you were creating. Whereas what I found so stressful about acting was like you're in it and it's mm. very difficult, you know, unless you're doing like a comedy to see what the audience's reaction is, you know? It's very, yeah. for me, I, I found it being in performing and kind of not knowing what was coming across to people quite a stressful experience. So I actually went through this process of almost like coming out as like a director at uni. <laughs> it was an amazing, when I went, like it was such an amazing course. Like it was super practice based, like, mm -hmm. and they had loads of opportunities for us, um, extracurricular opportunities for us to direct work. So like I directed a production of Blasted in my second year in a professional theatre space. I directed an Ed Thomas play in like a ramshackled house for my directing module. I worked in schools, you know, with um, young people. I also did an amazing um, martial arts as actor training course <laughs> with the great late Philip Cirilli, which was amazing. Fantastic. I've never been so flexible in my life. Like that, <laughs> that ship has sailed me ever being that bendy again. Like there was just such a range of stuff. And also in terms of my music, like I was part of an amazing soul choir and I gigged constantly as well yeah. as like an independent musician but also in bands so I just had this really really rich um experience at university like I feel very very grateful for the experience I had and coming out of uni was it a bit kind of like what do I do now or did you have a clear sense of who you were as an artist and what 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 happened next or was it challenging for you to find that um, I think, I mean, it was really funny, like, when my, my degree finished, I kind of thought to myself, I was like, right, I really want my life to be like how it was at uni, and it's like, I'm not religious, but it was as if someone was listening when I said that, I remember it was such a clear thought in my head, like, I just know that I want my, my life to be like this, and it has been, you know, as in, I, I kind of, I wanted to make I wanted to direct, I wanted to do applied theatre and I wanted to make music and that has what has happened, you know, is yeah. I've lived, you know, my 20s, I'm now, you know, I've just turned 30, has been all about that life, which is I'm so grateful for and um, yeah, but initially it was, you know, I went back to Mid Wales, I'm from a really rural community in Mid Wales and I was working in an eco cafe and I was doing like a Saturday job teaching drama to kids. And I kind of didn't really know what to do. I kind of thought I wanted to do an MA, but I didn't know. But then I formed my theatre company and that sort of gave me complete... I was like, right, now I know what I'm doing, basically. Uh, and you say that as if it was like an easy decision to make. But do you, did you feel comfortable, like, being like, oh, I'm going to make my own work now? Like, I'm just going to do it? 
Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it was, I just knew, and it's, it's, tr- it's been true my entire, like, the whole, when, you're a, when you're from a rural community, uh, especially in rural Wales, like, there are just not the kind of opportunities to climb to places like big theatres in London. There, you know, it's, you're, it's, you're going to fight so much harder to be taken seriously. And I was kind of like, I didn't want to spend my 20s just constantly being an assistant director. I just wanted to kind of make my own work off the bat. And I kind of, I met basically a student at Aberystwyth University, Jonathan Patton, and we formed my theatre company, Run Amok, because we just wanted to make work happen, like, there and then. So, yeah. you know, we had this mutual love of contemporary theatre, and we were like, let's just put on, so let's put on a show in Aberystwyth, let's see how it goes. And we did, and then we were like, well, let's keep putting work on. Um, you know, because at that time, like, I had the privilege of being, like, 22 and, like, working in a, you know, like, having flexible hours, working in a cafe or, like, teaching drama on a Saturday. Yeah. And I was working at a gift shop as well for part of that time. So it was, like, I had the ta- the privilege of time to kind of rehearse shows and put them on. And that's that's just what we did, really. And I kind of, it, I, I wasn't ever fearful. I think it was more just, like, it's just an urge to kind of make yeah. the work happen. It was always like I wanted my fit company to be a space where I could really creatively explore my potential as a director. And it still is yeah. that for me. You know, my, my company isn't um, one that is like constantly making work and constantly pushing to have like a massive social media presence or anything like that. For me, it's like it's my creative outlet. <laughs> I'm very like, you know, yeah. very sort of like open about that. You know, I'm not... For me, Run Amok is not like, I want us to be a really well-known company. It's about, like, a space where like-minded artists can kind of get together and just sort of make the work they want to make, you know? Is it, is it kind of more about making work, not, not entirely for you, but making work that you identify with, that you want to make, rather than wanting a, a massive audience for it or critical success? Is it more... Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely, mate. I mean, like, yeah, like, 100%. Like, and I've always, like, you know, I've worked in the Fringe Theatre for eight years, you know. I've only mm. had critical success, like, I would say, in the past two to three years. And at that, a very minor kind of level of it. <laughs> and so for me, it's, it's never been about kind of making work that's going to kind of get me huge critical success. It's making work I really believe in and that I'm really yeah. passionate about. And just... I'm coming from actually quite hilariously, like almost quite a selfish place in that regard because you're just like, well, I'm making this for me. and I, But I actually think there's a self-protective thing in that because I think if you strive to kind of please people, you're stri- striving to climb to get to a certain point, yeah. you know, um, through the reliance on other people or through the reliance of kind of like, you know, networking all the time, it's like, well what about you as an individual and what about you in terms of the work you want to make? Because at the end of the day, no matter what kind of level of critical success I get in my career, it's like, well, at the end of the day, you're just left with yourself, really. And that that stuff sometimes doesn't last for very long. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I'm very realistic about my, um, my fellow training director at the Royal Court, Philip, and I talk about this a lot, about like, we've been given this amazing opportunity but it doesn't mean we can take our foot off the gas. Do you know what I mean? It's no, like, oh, yeah. great, you're working at the Royal Court. Amazing. <laughs> and I'm obviously, I'm, God, like, we'll never not be, like, thankful for that opportunity. But also, it's like, I don't, I know that it doesn't mean that now everything's going to be easy. 
and now everything's going to be plain yeah, sailing. Absolutely. Like, you've got to keep pushing and keep, you know, finding new um, writers, finding new ideas of work you want to make. And I'm very grateful that I, I tend to have a lot of those ideas. So, you know, yeah. I'm not going to run out of them, basically. <laughs> uh, and um, you went on to do a master's at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama in applied theatre. Um, how did this kind of develop your practice as a theatre practitioner and a facilitator? Uh, and where did your interest in applied theatre come from? Mm, so, I... I basically kind of discovered applied theatre when I was doing my um, year 10 work experience, actually. I did um, my year 10 work experience with an Aberystwyth-based company called Ada Gorch, which I'm sure you've heard of. Yes. And they were working with a group of young people who were had really complex mental health, really complex behaviour. They were all about the same age as me. Right. And I just re- remember seeing them like seeing how Aragorn worked with them and being like, oh, this can be, this is theatre as well. And seeing how drama or like creative activities could unlock things and and sort of, yeah, gain sort of access and dialogue to young people who would usually be so difficult to kind of have that dialogue and exchange with. And so for me, in terms of uh, when I was thinking about like I wanted to do an MA, I was like, oh, I definitely want to do it in applied theatre, and not directing, because I'm really fascinated in like how you, as a facilitator, I mean, and my, I'm, 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 you know, my specialism is in um, young people on the autistic spectrum and with right. complex mental health. So I'm very used to working with um, non-verbal people or people that really struggle to communicate and. Um, verbally and I and I really sort of for me I just I find people I I love different ways of communicating it's not ever something that I've been fearful of or anything that I've kind of you know sort of um wanted to I've just always wanted to sort of like pursue different creative ways of working in that for in that way and I really and I love young people like I absolutely love teenagers like I'm (laughs) people always like what (laughs) literally badly behaved teenagers <laughs> I'm just like I just like my total jam like I just love like and even when like, I hate even using the words badly behaved or challenging behave kids with challenging behavior because I'm like there's always a reason for that behavior yeah. um and I yeah I've just always kind of loved working with young people and I always love like when you start a workshop you sort of you don't know what's going to happen I just love like the creative possibilities yeah. of the workshop it's always so exciting um and for me, it definitely has um, translated into how I make theatre as a director. And, you know, I, I work in a very facilitatory way with actors. Mm. And I, for me, it's a lot about have, the actors having ownership over what they create, like you would love your participants to have within an applied theatre space. Um, and it's a non, very non-hierarchical way of working. Yeah. And it's also an indirect way of working that I really love. Um, so yeah, no, I'm I'm really passionate about applied theatre. And at the moment, it's really funny. Like this year is the first year that I've not been doing that much applied theatre. I mean, I've been working actually. That's a bit of a lie. I have been doing some facilitation for Innovate with a group of adults with um, uh, learning disabilities, and that's been so much fun. We've just been yeah. creating like stories together, storytelling. 
you know, me and, and them together. And that's been the joyful part of lockdown for me is just having that little like <laughs> Wednesday morning session yeah. where we can just like make work together. That's been really good. Do you, do you ever come across attitudes from the, the people who are working with the people you're working with of like, oh, they can't do that or they won't do that or they won't be interested in that? And how do you kind oh. of, how do you combat that? Oh my gosh, all the time, Kieran. I mean, I, so I've like done a lot, I've worked a lot in psychiatric units as well. And like, I mean, the resistance you get from staff is amazing. Like, it's like quite impressive. You'll go in and you're like, they're just literally like, oh, they won't do that. Oh, they won't do that. Oh, like, you know, they would be really kind of like, oh my gosh. And in teachers as well, you know, and, and, but I'm always just like, you know just just give me an hour like it's okay and it's and it's weird it's it is it's just because I've, I've worked in so many different contexts now I'm always learning and I'm not saying by any means that I'm an expert but like I understand kind of the 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 frameworks that are needed for young people to engage with you as a facilitator and I I always find that yeah so most of the resistance comes from the adults rather than the young people because mm. often the young people that I am brought into work with are ones that are deemed as difficult to reach or difficult to communicate with and you know no social skills or do you know what I mean and, and yeah. have really had those labels put on them you know um I you know I worked with a young person last year who was really hard, um high on the autistic spectrum and is completely non-verbal but is also one of the most socially sensitive and socially adept people I've ever worked with you know <laughs> and made brilliant work with her and yet it was really interesting you know often if I see, saw other adults interacting with her it was just you just see the kind of like the prejudice of like oh you can't speak so you're not going to understand what I'm talking about <sighs> or you're going to understand what's happening in a different kind of context and you know and I don't you know yeah ableism is prevalent and I don't need to tell you that obviously but it's just it's you're so preaching to the <laughs> I mean I've experienced it myself uh, and but people are more complex uh, communication and disability you know there's always that assumption um, that if someone can't communicate effectively, that their intellect is going to be low, which isn't always the case. And even if it is, there should still be that level of respect for anyone who's working with that individual. I mean, th I mean, this is one of the things that I'm really kind of passionate about. We talk about inclusion, but how often is it really kind of true inclusion? Do you know what I mean? 100%. 100%. And the intersections within that as well. And, you know, like I work a lot with um, diaspora families in South Wales who have mm. autistic children. And again, the barriers that they face in terms of accessing support, you know, coming from different cultural backgrounds as well. And it's like, yeah, there's so there's so much work. And I think, and as you were saying, you know, like, what is effective communication? You know, and like, and people being deemed as being effective communicators, yeah. you know, and I, I find that very frustrating because, again, we have such a kind of model of what that looks like. And if you don't adhere to that, then, you know, yeah. And, and so it's, for me, I've always just been, I just, I just, 
really love connecting with people and I really love connecting with people and I also you know I have autistic people in my family as well so I'm used to kind of different ways of communicating you know and um and I think that it's funny I kind of went into this work not really kind of understanding that that would have had an impact on me yeah but it has you know and so in terms of um, engaging with people who communicate in a different way. It's not something that ever... Because I think a lot of it is fear, unfortunately. Yeah. I don't have fear about that. And I don't have, you know, fear about, like, unpredictable behaviour or behaviour that would be deemed as unpredictable or not neurotypical. It doesn't... Yeah. It's never phased me, really. I, I want to move on slightly. I'd like to talk about your directing and what is your process and does it differ depending on what project you're working on or you a kind of set process um yeah i mean i think my process it 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 kind of it's the same but it also very much differs in terms of what piece working on also in terms of time constraint like you know it's so funny like the last kind of biggest thing I directed was for National Theatre Wales on over Zoom I directed like um this piece Wolfie by Ross Willis and we literally had five days to throw it together <laughs> so it, it was quite cra- yeah it was madness we, so we had to like really sort of I had to go from often being a director that sort of would like you know the, the twins who I was working with Lowry and Mary Izzard and myself had to have a really direct, direct way of communicating with each other we had to be like right try this, do this, how's that work? No, it doesn't, let's go. You know, it had to be really quick and really direct, like more so than say in a rehearsal room. But I'm so used to having to do things. Again, because I've created work on the fringe, I'm used to really slow processes, like really quick processes with no money. So in terms of like pulling stuff together quite quickly, that's kind of what I'm used to. And, you know, so it's really interesting when I worked on On Their Ridge, like, um, last year, it was mm. it was a four-week process, and I was like, uh, what are we going to do with all the time, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm really excited, like, in the future to kind of do more work where there's a longer process, So, because I'm very, um, I'm used to having to do some things very quickly, but I'm also, you know, I think in terms of we're looking like what is my what is my exact process it's just reading the play over and over and Mm. over again and knowing what's happening and for me I'm a very sort of instinctive director so it's like looking at moments that really sort of move me and what I'm what I'm what what is that churning up in me and what how is that going to kind of translate to how I communicate that about that scene to the actors but also in terms of the audience as well yeah uh, are you kind of a, a democratic director do you let the actors have a big say in the process as well yeah absolutely i think you know as an applied theater facilitator i know the importance of ownership over creativity and i really resist a way of working in which actors don't feel like they have ownership over what they're making for me it's like it's about having a constant dialogue with actors and I think actors are incredibly emotionally intelligent people with and they I'm always like 
I learn so much from when I work with actors. You know, I often find actors will see something in this text that I will have missed, you know? And that's something that I feel mm. with, um, you know, all the time. I think you've got to have that constant dialogue going, you know? Absolutely. Um, because at the end of the day, like, I was literally just talking about this to my housemate because she was like, oh, yeah, once it's on, you're like, your job's done, isn't it? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's literally half an hour ago. That's what we're talking, we're talking about, kind of making work, because I'm, I'm about to go into a production week. And, and like, once the audience are in, it's like the show is, is the technical teams and the actors, you know, you've yeah. kind of done as much work, the work as you can, really. Um, and I love that. I love that process of just handing it over and, and for the team to make it their own. Uh, um, did it take a while for you to have that confidence to go, okay, my work is done here. There's nothing I can do now. It's up. It's over with. I've done it. I can't change oh gosh, anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, when I look at myself, like, I look at myself, like, ages 20, I would say 22 to, t like, 21 to 20, like, 4. Oh, my gosh. I was so, like, meticulous. Like, I was so, like, precious. <laughs> like you just yeah. this isn't this isn't working you know and and though I've always had really really great relationships with my actors like oh there was a definite like switch like after those two years of working in this very and again it was because I think of the anxiety of wanting to communicate everything I wanted to communicate in a short amount of time not much money not much resources but then you kind of get to a point where you realise you're like, right, you've just got to be really solid in what you believe this is. But also an yeah. audience is going to take away something completely different from it. Exactly. I mean, like an audience is going to be like, it's either going to hate it or they're going to love it or they're going to laugh at different points to you, you know. And that's now, that's something that I've just learned to really embrace and enjoy. Mm. I kind of, when I make my work, I'm like, I'm just really excited to see how people respond, even if it's negative. I'm just really intrigued by that. Uh, it's the same for me from a writing perspective. You can write something with a certain intention. It doesn't mean that it's going to be interpreted that way. And it's very difficult to let that go, I think. Um, 100%. So how, do, how did you form Runaround? You spoke about this briefly. Um, have, what were your aims when you started? And has that, has that changed since Runamuck has been in existence? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I formed Runamuck with my friend Johnny, who is now who now works at the Pleasant Theatre in London, um, because we just wanted to put on work by writers we really love, so, like, Philip Ridley, Sarah Kane, Ed Thomas, Debbie Tucker-Green, and we just... It was this very, like can-do attitude of like let's do it let's tour let's make work and I don't think that's really changed really although Johnny's now kind of sort of moved on from the company I now kind of co-run it with Nerida Bradley um who's obviously a living legend that you know it's a joy and like for me again we we share really similar politics, Merida and I. We are singing very much from the same hymn sheet and we just know the kind of work that we want to 
make and the kind of actors that we love working with and it's still there for me like run as i said earlier like run and mock is just there but it's my creative outlet really mm. it's my you know it's a company where i feel i can make the work happen that you know as a as a as a as a queer woman as a welsh woman from a rural community like i it it takes such a long time often to be taken seriously for your work and like for me run amok was like well i'm just going to take my own work seriously and i'm just going to put it on you know without having to yeah. have permission from anyone because i feel that you know there's a there can be a lot of waiting around for people to just like make their work happen and for me I'm a, I'm a very did you kind of feel as well that the big companies are not gonna kind of get this type of work and not gonna invest in the type of work that you want to make i think for me i think what has been i think i'm a i've been a bit of an anomaly on the welsh theater scene because of the fact i do so many different things so i think mm. like there's been i think because i also like had a really active music career and i do applied theater um definitely feelings around the fact that like I might have like you know I might not be as serious a director okay. as I as I might I am as I, might, as I know I am I think we're now going into a kind of a new way of looking at careers as being more portfolio and people doing lots of different things but I would say it's been a real fight for me to be taken seriously to be given opportunities from um from bigger companies you know I'm always really really frank with like I've had so many rejections like from like trying to make work happen by big or by big companies in Wales and outside you know like and that's why it was so great it was when I'm like we could tour to venues like you know our mm. first tour we went to chapter and we sold out like and I was 23 and from from you know a tiny from bloody McCunstack and I was just like great and that again, you know, it's about that ownership and like not having to rely on like a big organization to yeah. have that validation. It's like, I'm just, yeah, I just don't feel like, I'm, and it's really funny now because I'm obviously working at, you know, at the, on the complete opposite end yeah, of the scale. Like, it's say. very like historically well-respected theatre coming from a, coming from a background of like very like DIY community-based work, um, you know, very very much fringe i mean it's so funny when my credits like all my directing credits are from my own theater company pretty much like <laughs> and going going into the court is there an element of imposter syndrome then um it's i mean yeah i mean i think it's not so much imposter syndrome as feeling like I feel quite like a foreigner there, like, right. because I come from a completely different theatre scene, so everyone on staff, like, knows, like, all these actors on the London scene, all these writers, all these directors, that I just obviously don't know because I've not been there, so it's not yeah. so much, it's, and, you know, obviously, I mean, when you're working with such incredible talent, of course, it's always going to be an element of imposter syndrome. But I think the thing that I find, you know, like a lot of the time I'm like, oh, who's that? So often like we're in Zooms and I'll mention all these names. And I'll just be quickly Googling so I can just put like a face <laughs> to the names of the people they're mentioning. Because yeah. I don't, I don't come from, I don't come from London. I don't come from the no. London theatre scene. But also, you know, like, 
what I love about the court is that it's such a democratic space and you are so valued as a staff member. Like, it's, I mean, I don't want to get too gushy, but it's like being in some sort of, you know, I've never felt so valued um, by by employers before. And you kind of, you have, to, you end up doing so many different things as part of the job that I'm doing at the moment. And I feel very much like my voice is very heard and fairly valid. Yeah. in that organisation, even though in terms of the pecking order of the artistic team, I'm at the bottom because I'm the training director, yeah. you know, I still have a real input into creative decisions in the organisation and like, and the, you know, the, sh- the, cl- the show that we're working on at the moment that we're opening next week, like, had a huge impact into, you know, like I've picked the, the composer that we're working with, you know, which is so exciting. Wow. So it's just like, yeah, it's amazing. I love it so much. I never want to leave. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like how much have you learned and how much have you been able to hone your craft as a director from this time at the Royal Court? I mean, I'm just every day, every day's a learning day. Like, I, I'm so sort of inspired by not only kind of like more senior members of staff, but also like the, my colleagues who are the same age as me, like my, so if the first year there's ever been two um, trainee directors, so it's myself and um, a guy called Philip Morris, and we've just become like siblings, like we have, you know, and we've learned so much from each other. We also come from quite a similar background creatively so far as we've done loads of community theatre mm-hmm. work. And this is like our first big like, like I would hate to use but like more commercially sort of job and so you know we learn from each other all the time and then but I've got some other amazing kind of colleagues like Millie Batia who's a phenomenal theatre director Ola Ince who is just like has this amazing kind of dramaturgical brain um Maya Jeffers who works in literary who's like a photographer dramaturg and theatre director like I'm so inspired by people in my own age bracket and who who just like pushed me to be like a better creative and a better human and it's no I I feel constantly like inspired and I learn continuously from my colleagues like um on on the daily you know it's great it's really Uh, great and what was it like to be the emerging director on on Bear Ridge which was a couple between the chairman and the royal court yeah, I mean, that, it was so funny with that job because Ed Thomas, I've directed Ed Thomas's work since, like, I was at uni. Like, I've been such a kind of yeah. advocate for him as a writer. So when I saw this job come up, I almost didn't apply for it because I was like, it's too perfect a job. Like, for me, the Royal Court is, like, my favourite theatre. Ed Thomas is one of my favourite playwrights. Vicky Ferguson, I'm just like, you know, I was always just in awe of. So I almost didn't apply for it because I was like, it's almost too good a job. Like, and I was so... Mm-hmm. I'm so used to getting rejections. I was also like, you're just not going to get it, is. But, like, go for it. Just have a go. You probably <laughs> yeah. won't get it, but have a go. And so I did. And I got it. And, you know, like, I mean, that job has changed my life. Like, mm. totally. Forever, my life has changed from taking that job on. Because it opened up my world. It opened, you know, it allowed me to gain access to a world that I was just not even nowhere close to, really, beforehand, you know. And, and I mean, and even, it's so funny, like, <laughs> even, because I applied basically the trainee director job in the gap between 
um, on Bear Ridge being kind of transferred to um, the Royal Court. Mm. And I didn't tell anyone that on, like the only people that knew in the company that I'd applied for it was Free Sidbans, who I became who I became really close friends with, and Ed, the playwright. No one else. I didn't tell anyone else that I'd done it because I was just like, I, again, probably won't get it. I'm not going to get it, but, you know, it'll be cool. Like, I'll just go for it, you know? And yeah. so, um, yeah, it was like the biggest shock, but it was amazing because I found out on opening night at the Royal Court wow. that I got the job. Wow. <laughs> which was literally the most intense night of my life probably like because <laughs> it was like show opening in the royal court and then all my closest friends from london had come blessed them and got like you know front row seats and and i was just literally i i i was so convinced i hadn't got it and i was just saying to like to Chris and ed i was like i've not got it i've not got it it's fine it's fine we'll just have a drink after it'd be lovely i'll just forget about it <laughs> and then like he was like oh is can you just come have a conversation yeah. and then she told me that i got it and it was just like mind-blowing because I think that um, something I just really want to reiterate I think that so many directors think they have to follow a certain trajectory to get to some sort of position like that and like both for Philip and I we are people that have worked done a lot of work that is not commercial we haven't done a lot of assisting we've done a lot of work with young people yeah. you know and actually your skills if you hone those skills, you know, like they have, they have just as much impact as assistant directing at the Almeida. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Or like, <laughs> or doing something at the Sherman or doing, do you know what I mean? Like that work, like with the right, the right people will see the value in that work, you know, and, and you as a uh, person and, yeah. And if they don't, obviously that partnership and that relationship is not right for you as a director if they can't see the value in that. I think people do believe that there's one path, but you know, there's there's many different ways of of many different ways in. You know, it's just kind of finding yeah. that way that's right for you. I was wondering, just just before we kind of finish, could you talk about the uh, I I'm gonna mispronounce this, aren't I? Dakan Lumai slash Lost Heritage Project. Was that okay? That was perfect. So that was like, that's it, yeah, Dakan Lumai, that's it. Um, um, yeah. So, so this is a project that you recently ran with the Somali community in Cardiff. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, I've been working with the Somali community in Cardiff for like three years. Um, it kind of came about that um, I was basically through another job at a sort of at an event and this, there's this organisation called Hayat Women's Trust, which is a grassroots organisation supporting kind of members of the Somali community through like advocacy work, um, translation work, all, they do all sorts of different projects and just kind of general kind of community well-being and someone from that organization was like well we want to make theatre we want to do more art stuff and I was, I just happened to be there on that night I said oh well I do that like <laughs> should we have a chat and, and it kind of has ended up like I've been just a part of the Somali kind of like yeah grassroots community organizations like for the last three years you know and I'm I'm it's amazing like I have this very um just amazing kind of working life where 
I often, you know, I'm like the only white person in the space, mm. like, and that's just been, that's been my average working life for like the past, which again, in, in the arts in Wales is not something that, you know, is very common. It's very, still a very, very white middle-class space, the art scene in Wales, but um, I've, yeah, it's been an amazing sort of three years. And we kind of, with, with Duck and Lume, it was a project for young, for young girls who, um, associated with the organization to kind of make their own work basically to write a play about what it is being Somali and Welsh and again kind of with that work I'm very aware of the fact that I don't belong to that community so I'm in constant collaboration with people from that community who are also amazing creative practitioners you know in their in their own right and do amazing sort of community work so like that project I co-directed with this um, with this amazing young Somali theatre maker called Nura, um, and now at the moment I'm working with another um, woman of the community called Hibbo on a project um, called the Young Queens Project, which is basically an extension of Dakan Lume, and, and was started during lockdown. Um, and it's a space for young Somali women to just write about their experience of being yeah. black, being Welsh, being creatives um so yeah the Daka and Lume project was like a play about um a group of youtubers that had had got put on a Somali like they were into Somaliland to go on holiday basically and it was using this kind of theatrical form this Somali theatrical form called the Rewired which is basically a really comedic morality play um so it's very sort of over the top very very funny um and it's and it's again like it's there's so much art happening in that community kind of you know without someone like mm-hmm. me coming in you know that they're an incredibly creative um community they're always having events um i kind of sort of came in to just help with sort of getting funding for it really and sort of just facilitating okay. it a bit more you know and having a bit of that input but it's very the work that's coming out of the Somali community in Cardiff is very self-sustaining and really, really rich. And, you know, I've just finished a project, a film project with um, these these young women that I've been working with who are from the decade called Young Queens, where they've written some amazing poems about in, in the wake of Black Lives Matter. And I've worked, I've worked yeah. with the amazing um, film director, Liana Stewart, who's from Cardiff originally, who just had a film out um, called Black and Welsh, um, on the BBC and it's really I'm really excited that those are coming out those will be coming out in the next couple of months which is really really exciting and I think that um yeah I can't wait for people to see just what rich and amazing mm-hmm. talent we have in Cardiff and these are young people that haven't done extracurricular drama class no. you know they're like they, yeah. they're not coming from that kind of background it's just like pure raw talent and I'm just I'm really excited for us to see kind of what we have in Cardiff, because I think we think we're such a we are such a small city, but there's also so many pockets of like amazing activity that's happening yeah, beyond our very white, very middle class theatre scene. <laughs> I mean, it's about how how do we get those voices into spaces like Chairman WMC of the room, and how do we get more people to see that work? Would you agree with that? I mean absolutely I think for me it's 
it's people like myself using my privilege to make those conversations happen and that's especially and with with the kind of most recent kind of um the real film project that's exactly what's happened you know it's like i think but it's also about organizations really investing time and energy into doing that mm. work and and to also acknowledge that these are these are relationships built that built up over time do you know what I mean? Like, I think so much of kind of when we look at sort of community engagement or integration or whatever, like, what word you want to call it, it's coming from such a tick box point of view. And it's like, if you want a sustained relationship with people over a, over a period of time, it's that's exactly what it is. It's a relationship. Like, I, it's a human relationship in exchange. It is part of what's happening organisations being afraid of tokenism and by being afraid of tokenism they are then being guilty of being tokenistic do you know what I mean yeah, I think, yeah. yeah no 100% know what you mean I think I think it's, it's for me in terms of kind of how like organisations are structured period we need to like look at full restructuring and it's looking at stuff stuff like boards for example yeah. and like you can't not just having one person who's queer or one person with a disability or one person who's POC or black on your board in, in, in order to kind of like be like, oh, look at us, we're being inclusive and diverse. It's like, well, no, actually, it's like white voices need to be the minority. <laughs> you know, like they, they need to, it's about now taking a real step back. And it's really interesting at the court, we've just started a project with an organisation called Sour Lemons, who are doing a two-year anti-racist project with us across the entire organisation. Wow. Which is like looking at us completely decolonising as an organisation. And I'm like, that is like the level of depth that, that work huge. needs to do, because it's not only about... It's not only about organisational structures, but it's also about funding structures. It's also about like work on yourself as an individual, yeah, as well, and and acknowledging that it is like a lifelong unlearning. Um, and I just think that you know, yeah, so much more needs to be done. But I'm kind of, I, I mean, in, in this year I've been having a lot of conversations with organisations, and it's like there's so much anxiety around it and I think another part of it is also training I think we have very very poor anti-racism mm. training I and mean we have very you know and it's again like as as um bell hooks <laughs> who always says it's like you know you've got to like the process of like decolonizing you've got to start with yourself and if you don't have you know people who are different from you in your life Yes. That's, you've got to start there. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, I think that's another thing. It's like people are often coming from such a bubble. <laughs> yeah. You know, be that an able bubble, be that a white bubble, be that a straight bubble, you know? I mean, I don't know whether you know about this, but I've had my battles recently with a certain theatre company um, around, I'll tell you about it when we finish, but around their attitudes towards disability and I, I had a meeting with them, I sent them a letter and then I had a meeting with the artistic director and I asked oh, when was the last time you had disability awareness training and they said oh it was about five years ago and like oh, as if oh, it's about ensuring that this training is regular 
and all staff, no matter whether they're the artistic director or whether they're front of house, receives this training. Because it's just not acceptable in 2020. No, it, it shouldn't be when theatres reopen next year. Absolutely. No, I completely agree with you. Trying to get like some organisations to just have a dialogue is just such hard work. And trying to kind of like... I think we are so encultured to feel... to fear being uncomfortable... And it's like, once you sit in that uncomfortableness, that is where, like, that is useful. That is a useful feeling. (laughs) And turn that into action, you know. But I think we're so encultured to be, like, to be perfect and right, basically. And I mean that in all of the ways. And Mm -hmm. I think that sort of, yeah, people hate admitting that they're wrong and people hate admitting that they've messed up. And it's like, right, okay, well, how how do you turn that guilt because it is guilt into something productive you know yeah and how do you do that work on yourself and it's a process you know i'm not saying it's easy either it it shouldn't it shouldn't be all on those marginalized communities to make that change because it's a lot of work it's a lot of headspace and we need allies but absolutely the last question i wanted to ask you was what advice would you give to someone who is just starting out in the theatre industry, particularly where we are now? Um, I would say, I think it's about really having like a clear vision of like what is the work that you want to make and what is it you really want to say um, and who is it you're making work for. And I think... I mean, and that can change kind of over time. But for me, it's like I wanted to make my life to be as creatively fulfilling as possible on my terms. And it has been like, it has been a lot of work. You know, at one point when I first moved to, you know, I moved to Cardiff and I was effectively homeless for three months. I was working over the summer bar like I'd spend on a, on a on a Friday night like I'd work till 3am I'd sleep for four hours I'd get up at seven work in a shop like okay. it was really tough mm. but I was like but I know the life I want to make for myself like I want to have a life where I'm gigging and making music all the time and I'm directing plays and I'm working with young people and I've been able to build that because all the time of being so just like that is what how I want my existence to be that's how I want my life to look like and I think that like being kind of secure on that and making decisions about the kind of work that you take when you have the privilege to take the kind of work that you want to take complements your desire. That's I think that's really important for young people to realise because there's definitely a tendency, and I mean, I did it myself, of like just taking anything that's thrown at you because you're yeah. like, oh my gosh, just any kind of It's almost like, oh, like you're never going to get an industry job again, so you've got to take that one, otherwise you're never going to get another commission. Absolutely. But it's like also within that finding pockets of creative space where you're making work that is completely, like, resonant with where you're at, Mm. you know. And and I'm very lucky I get to do that both in music and I get to do it in theatre as well. Um... But it's really interesting, it's like, it's only recently, like, I feel that when I 
when I direct, I'm really showing my soul. And I didn't kind of, before it was like, oh, I'm directing a play because I love the play. It's all about the play. Mm-hmm. But like, especially with Wolfie, I had this really like, kind of quite almost like spiritual, emotional experience where I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm bearing my soul in the direction of this piece. People don't know that. But <laughs> I, I felt like I was like, yeah. I kind of like, for me, I, I, I was in, I based it on the aesthetic of the Mighty Boosh and Shameless. And I think of those two things <laughs> together and I'm like, that, those two things are such like core parts of my, my teenage life of yeah. like things that I watched that inspired me, you know? Um, so yeah, so kind of making, so that was the first thing that I made, like, I felt like when I, when I put Wolfie on, I was like, oh my God, yeah, this is like, this is almost like me singing a song about yeah. a recent breakup. <laughs> That's the whole bearing. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. It's been amazing talking to you. Thank you for your time. Um. And that's about it for this episode, but I will catch you on the next episode of In Lockdown With, where I think my guest is going to be Emma Evans, who is a producer at the Wales Millennium Centre. So until then, it's bye from me and bye from Izzy. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown With. The podcast is written produced and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.